Well, good morning, everyone from London here at 11 o'clock, and I'm delighted to have a very old colleague, Dr. Raj Perseau, here today. Raj has suggested that we might talk about how to properly panic in a pandemic, and I simply couldn't resist. The title alone uh, made me excited uh, to have today's webinar. Now, you'll all know me. I'm Michael Mainelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien. And as I say every time, it really is a privilege to be able to introduce uh, one of these webinars. We've had a very, very rich series, uh, particularly during this year of the pandemic. And I think it's going to be exciting uh, to hear uh, what we've all been doing wrong. Have we been panicking improperly during this pandemic? And we're only able to handle these webinars due to the generosity and, may I say, tolerance of our sponsors who range widely and freely uh, across technology, economics and finance. Uh, but we're all people and we're all suffering under COVID-19 and we all need to learn how to how to panic properly. Now, today's format is as ever. Um, I'm here to get out of your way uh, and let you on to our main speaker, our expert, uh, Dr. Perso. Uh, Raj is going to talk for about 20, 25 minutes. I might warn you, he has three polls and they are fun polls for a change. So uh, fingers on buzzers, please. Uh, and a last comment from me, uh, I'm here with you, so I'm not on my email and I am not on my text and not on any other uh, variety of work life and balance machinery. Um, so if you'd like to contribute to the conversation, we do have 15 minutes or so to talk about that. Please use the GoToWebinar question facility and I will take those questions and I'll feed them into Raj. Uh, a few points, uh, the slides such as they are will be posted uh, afterwards. Uh, but in addition, all of the questions will be sent to Raj. So if you've got any question or comment, I will send them uh, with the email that comes on the GoToWebinar question facility. Uh, and with that, Raj, if I may, uh, the floor is very much yours. Thank you very much. I've been delighted to have been asked to join uh, with you and talk a little bit about mental health care and the psychology of coping uh, with coronavirus. And the title of my talk is How to Panic Properly Over the Pandemic. So uh, to introduce myself, I'm a consultant psychiatrist and I work in private practice in Harley Street. And basically, um, the talk I'm going to give, I'm concerned and I apologize in advance, I suspect is going to irritate a lot of you. It's going to be very, very annoying, a lot of the things I'm going to say, because I'm going to challenge uh, practically everything you think you know about well-being and mental health care. So I apologize in advance for the fact that um, this is going to be irritating and we're going to have a bit of a fight, a bit of an argument. So um, I, I'm challenging you all straight away because I think that probably you have a view of what a therapist is from Hollywood movies. The therapist is a kind, patient person who dispenses tea and sympathy. Um, I'm not that kind of therapist. Um, so um, we're going to be talking about things where I challenge everything you think you know about mental health care, um, but with a view to the idea that I think there's some big mistakes going on around when people talk about mental health care, about what resilience really uh, looks like. Um, so I uh, work in private practice in Harley Street, which is the main center of private practice medicine uh, here in London. People fly in from all over the world. So it's seen as a private practice center. And I know what you're thinking already. Here he is, he's a psychiatrist, he works in private practice in Harley Street, so he doesn't see people with real problems. All he does all day is see people like supermodels and actresses. Well, it's a tough job, but someone's got to do it. 
Um, so I'm going to start straight away by asking you what you think a psychiatrist is, because one of the very confusing things about this field is there's so many different words, psychiatrist, psychologist, psychoanalyst, counselor, therapist. Who are all these people? And how come there's so many different versions of the professions uh, doing this thing? And what are their different perspectives? And there's a big clue right there. There's so many different people operating in this area with so many different titles that the, the field is very controversial. What mental health is, is controversial. Wherever you are in the world, if you develop appendicitis and need an appendix operation, wherever you are, you'll get a surgeon who will operate in roughly a similar way, if he's a good surgeon, all over the world, most medical care is incredibly standardized and even manualized. There are manuals that tell you how to perform the operation. Psychology, psychiatry, psychotherapy, it's a wild west. It's completely different. So you should, if you go and see a psychiatrist or a psychologist, is ask them a little bit about who exactly they are, what's their training, what's their qualifications. And I see a lot of um, high net worth individuals in my private practice, people who run banks. It's always astonished me how they could be seeing a therapist for years and they come to me for another opinion. And I say, well, who was the person you were seeing? What were their qualifications? Were they a doctor? And these people who run major banks look at me blankly and never thought to ask, and it makes a big difference. So my opening poll uh, challenges you to, what do you really know about what a psychologist or a psychiatrist is? I was in the green room of a very famous news TV program, and the presenter who was in the green room with me before he went on turned to me suddenly and said, what is the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? And I was astonishing that this world-famous journalist had no idea. So that's the opening poll. The poll is, what is the essential difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? A, a psychologist believes everything comes down to sex, while a psychiatrist dispenses electroshock treatment. B, to become a psychiatrist, you have to be yourself in therapy first, but anyone can be a psychologist. C, one involves having to go to university, and the other you can do in a course or over a weekend, but I forget which. So choose A, B, or C. Um, and we'll get some uh, ideas as to what the results are. Um, but I want you to be thinking a little bit about what these people do. What do they do differently? Do they practice in a different way? Or does it really make no difference in terms of their practice? What's their training? What's their background? Do they come at the subject from a different way? And if both psychologists and psychiatrists can treat depression, then what is the essential difference between them? Um, and you'll be amazed how very few people can really answer this question. And it's essential as a starting point um, in terms of moving forward. Okay, um, Raj. Well, your lab rats are very quick off the mark here. Um, okay. Just over 70% have voted. I'll close the poll in just a second. And here okay. we go. Virtually all the audience voting. Here are the results. Um, okay. Right. One involves university, the other involves a course. 56%, almost two-thirds of you went for that one. For psychiatrists, you have to be yourself in therapy first. 33% a third. The least popular one was um, a psychologist. It's all about sex and a psychiatrist, um, electroshock treatment. So let me speak a little bit to that. So one of the reasons we mentioned the sex thing is people are dimly aware of someone called Sigmund Freud, who seemed to believe that everything was about sex. Um, and um, one of the things um, uh, a, a lot of people therefore think is that psychologists and psychiatrists burrow into your past and get to, to that as being the theory. In fact, um, the essential difference, and, and none of the answers are really right, I'll, I'll tell you which one comes closest, that the essential difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist is 150 pounds an hour. 
Um, it's an old joke, but it's one of my favorites. Um, basically, there are actually very little difference in terms of what they end up doing. But a psychiatrist is medically trained. A psychiatrist is a doctor. So it's a specialism, just like obstetrics and gynecology or neurology. So being a doctor, a psychiatrist can prescribe medication. And they can prescribe electroshock therapy, and, and they can even prescribe surgery in some very specialist circumstances. A psychologist is someone who theoretically should have a degree in psychology from university. Psychology is not a branch of medicine, although in fact, they both end up practicing in very similar ways. So the essential difference is a psychologist cannot prescribe medication. But another key difference is because, because psychiatrists are used to working in hospitals, they tend to handle risk differently. So they're used to dealing with risk. Doctors are used to dealing with risky situations, and that can lead to a difference in practice. So the essential difference is a psychiatrist is a doctor, and that can influence the way they practice. Maybe psychiatrists prescribe too much medication, for example, because they can prescribe it. And psychologists tend to operate in the realm of what are the psychological principles whereby you can learn to cope. And believe it or not, I'm going to confuse matters because although I'm a psychiatrist, I practice in a very psychological manner. I believe that you can learn to be resilient psychologically without recourse to medication, and that's the kind of thing we'll be talking about. So our opening slide is this uh, lovely uh, young woman, Lorna Breen. Lorna Breen was uh, a doctor, a very eminent doctor, was medical director of the emergency department at uh, the New York Presbyterian Hospital in Manhattan. Um, an eminent doctor, and I've got to tell you, uh, there's no way I could be an emergency uh, department doctor, far less run an emergency department in medicine. Um, that's like a war zone. Emergency departments, uh, uh, hospitals, particularly in the pandemic, um, and particularly perhaps in New York. Um, tragically, uh, Dr. Lorna Breen um, uh, um, committed or completed suicide uh, on the 27th of April, 2020, and this hit the headlines. Such an eminent doctor, uh, such a charming woman who had a whole of life ahead of her should kill herself. Her family said she died because she was overwhelmed by the pandemic. She, she um, uh, complained that patients were arriving in ambulances and were dying, this is back in April 2020, before they could get into the hospital. And uh, the, the family believed that she was despairing and upset by the overwhelming strain of her job. But there's some other theories that we could think a little bit about because the way the press reported this goes to the heart of one of the central problems with the way people think about how to cope with a pandemic. And by the way, if such an intelligent, uh, resilient doctor, she must have been resilient to, to run the emergency department of a hospital, should end up feeling so despairing and hopeless, should give us pause for thought. Um, and a lot of people thought to themselves at the beginning of the pandemic, what does she know about the future of the pandemic and how bad it might get? That we don't. Um, now, um, she herself got COVID-19 back in March and returned to work. She was obviously very, very conscientious. Maybe she returned to work too early and was, as a result, overwhelmed uh, by working too hard, too quickly returning to, to work, and she may not have been well enough. Um, however, one of the things that got missed out in the story about the reporting of her suicide, and I think it's very important, is that she had a very, very um, uh, positive and wide hinterland in terms of her social life. She ran marathons, <clears throat> um, she uh, danced salsa, um, and she loved skiing. Is it possible that actually the real thing that caused the trouble and led her to be troubled was that all the coping skills she had, all the things she used to do to sort of um, distract her from a very uh, uh, challenging work, the skiing, the marathon running, uh, and the salsa dancing were no longer possible in the pandemic. So is it the case that maybe 
The reason the pandemic is difficult to cope with is because it removes the normal coping skills we have. For example, um, if you're in an elevator and suddenly gets stuck between two floors, um, the 10 people in the elevator who were ignoring each other start talking to each other as they just press desperately on the emergency button to talk to someone to get them out of the stuck elevator. It is the case that when we're under strain, we tend to affiliate, we tend to make contact with people. And the pandemic took away uh, that coping skill as well. Um, so one of the key essential take home points is people come to see me and they usually start the narrative of why they're there to see me by explaining that the source of their stress is an event out there in the world. They've got a bullying boss. Their wife has just left them. Something bad has happened to them. And they leap quickly to the idea then, once they report their symptoms of depression or anxiety, that it must be the bad thing that happened to them. And we see this in the way the tragic death of Dr. Lorna Breen was reported. Psychology and psychiatry take a very radically different view as to actually what the real source of the upset is. Yes, the life event is important, but the other thing that's very important are the coping skills or the coping response that you mount to the tragedy that you now face yourself. And all the evidence is that the real location of the problem is mounting ineffective coping skills or less than effective coping skills. And we're gonna discuss what those key coping skills are. But the key territory of action should be when you're thinking about the fact you're upset or stressed is not to keep dwelling and ruminating on the bad thing that's happened to you, but instead focus on what the action plan is and what the correct coping response is that you can mount. And the particular stress of the pandemic, in my opinion, was not just it delivered a huge number of hits, a lot of bad things happened to people, um, many of them unprecedented, but the key thing was it took away coping skills that probably people rely on. And what they had to do was be more imaginative and understand that they need to operate in the territory of generating uh, alternative or better coping skills. And we'll we'll discuss uh, what that looks like. Okay, so um, let's move to the next slide. So in the desperate attempt um, um, to, um, no, actually we want to go to the slide of Albert Camus, if we can. Um, in the um, uh, desperate attempt to find um, coping skills, uh, people turned to a book in large numbers written by Albert Camus who is a uh, French uh, philosopher and uh, famous uh, existentialist. So he wrote a famous book in the late 1940s called The Plague. And all around the world as the pandemic hit in 2020, people turned uh, to this book um, because it seemed to be the key coping resource. Albert Camus had written the book just after uh, Second World War. And although the book um, was one of the things that gave him uh, the Nobel Prize for Literature, one of the youngest people ever to have got the Nobel Prize for Literature. The book was originally seen as an allegory of the Nazi occupation of France. It had been written just after uh, the World War II was over, and um, clearly uh, people thought Albert Camus had been influenced by that. The Plague is a novel about a story uh, of a, a Algerian town that's hit by a plague. And many aspects of the novel are incredibly prophetic in terms of predicting 50 years, over 50, 60, 70 years later, what happened to us in the pandemic. For example, the pandemic starts because a germ or a bug spreads from rats, i.e. an animal, to the human population. Um, now, there are many things about um, uh, the novel uh, that Camus wrote uh, that, that is prophetic, but one of the key things that existentialism is saying as a coping skill is that you need to confront just how bad things are. 
And that is one of the central take-home messages of the plague. Uh, the plague says there's a central tendency when governments are talking to you or counselors or therapists are telling, talking to you to, to think the coping response is to dispense tea and sympathy and try to disguise just how bad things are. Um, one of the reasons why existentialist philosophy is seen as somewhat bleak is precisely because it says, look, it's not just bad, it's worse than you think it is. And one of Albert Camus' important contributions is to take existentialist philosophy in a different direction. It's just not the case, uh, and I'm not trying to blaspheme or, or, or um, annoy religious people out there, I'm just telling you what the existentialist uh, view is. The existentialist view is that religion is basically a coping skill, the belief in God is a coping skill to face the suffering that inevitably happens with life. The existentialist position is that there is no God, and what you've got to do is work out for yourself what you're going to do in the face of despair. Um, now, the book is very dark, and I'm going to suggest an alternative approach to Albert Camus' approach, which is to accept that it's really bad and it's just going to get worse. And the way to reconcile yourself with the suffering is try not to disguise yourself from the inevitability of how bad things can be in life. Interestingly, Camus himself died in mysterious circumstances in 1960. And given the, um, the raft of conspiracy theories that have arisen um, uh, around the pandemic, it is very interesting that his own death should lead to a lot of conspiracy theories. Uh, the story is he'd been holidaying with his publisher and the publisher's wife and, and Albert Camus' wife and their children in, his, uh, uh, in Albert Camus' house in the south of France in uh, Provence. And that um, uh, the, the, the wife, Albert Camus' wife and children were packed into a train to get back to Paris. They were returning from the holiday. Albert Camus had a ticket, a train ticket, but mysteriously decided to drive back uh, with his publisher. The publisher drove him back in his car, the publisher was sitting in the front seat with Albert Camus, and the publisher's wife and children were in the back seat of the car. Uh, one theory is that Albert Camus apparently had three different mistresses on the go at the time, and the reason he put the wife on the train and he drove back to Paris was he was rather hoping to get there before the wife got there on the train and have his wicked way with his various mistresses in Paris. That is a theory we don't know, but we do know that the car crashed and Albert Camus died tragically just about 60 miles outside of Paris. And a book has just been published saying that actually uh, the reason the car crashed was it was sabotaged because Albert Camus was a prominent critic of the Soviet state. Um, uh, prominent Soviet officials were about to visit France and they were trying to shut this famous rebellious figure up. Whether you believe in that far-fetched story or not, it is interesting and slightly ironic that the book The Plague should give Albert Camus the Nobel Prize and that should make him uh, an important person and could inadvertently maybe have led to his death because um, he had to be shut up. So um, Camus' position is that life is absurd, get used to the idea that really absurd things happen like uh, pandemics. Um, so, but is there an alternative position to the existentialist position? And I'm going to argue there is. And one of the ways we can find a better set of coping skills is to go to science. And psychiatry and psychology are based on science. So let's come to the next polling question. And I'm going to talk a little bit about um, this subject in, in a moment, but I want you to think about um, this question, because this is one of the big mental phenomena that has actually caused a lot of trouble during the pandemic. When I see patients, I ask them to, to define for me what emotions are, what they think depression and anxiety is, and in particularly what a worry is. Because worrying about stuff is one of the commonest, if not the commonest, aversive mental phenomena, and yet people can't define a worry. 
You can't manage worry unless you define it. And that's a very important step at the start of therapy. And a lot of bad therapy doesn't define these things like emotions, depression, and worry. So what is the technical definition of worry? This is the poll we want to get your response to. Just in case you didn't understand the question, when brain scientists refer to the term worry in order to study it, what mental phenomenon are they referring to? How do they dispassionately define it? A, a worry is anything that keeps you up at night. B, dwelling on a thought so much it preoccupies you to the exclusion of any other idea. C, any bad feeling inside your head you can't get rid of despite your best efforts. D, what happens when your spouse unexpectedly picks up your phone and you suddenly can't remember if you deleted everything you needed to. And E, none of the above. If you choose this one, can you come up with a better definition? Okay, so while we're waiting for you to answer that question, the reason why this is very, very important is worry is actually probably the main cause of most people's stress. Um, and therefore, it becomes a very important thing to define clearly in order to learn how to handle it. It's a group of people we call chronic worriers. These are people who are worrying practically all the time. What's really interesting about chronic worriers is they're often very successful people. Um, and worrying leads to success, which is one of the central problems at the heart of handling uh, the stress of the pandemic is some of the strategies that helped you uh, at other parts of your life um, actually are unhelpful sometimes in the pandemic. So worrying a lot um, may be unhelpful in the pandemic. So we've got the results now. Anything that keeps you up at night, only 5% of you went for that answer. Dwelling on a thought so much it preoccupies you, 60% went for that answer. Any bad feeling inside your head you can't get rid of, 28% went for the answer. When your spouse unexpectedly picks up the phone, no percent went for that answer. I'm very surprised by the fact that no one went for that one. And finally, none of the above, I think it is you send us your answer. 8% went for that. Okay, so the technical definition of worry, and I venture to suggest, even though many of you had a go, um, you were taking a stab in the dark. You were throwing darts at a board because you hadn't really thought about that question before. I like to tease my patients when I ask them to um, define a worry, when they struggle, everyone struggles to do it in, in case of a question, I say to them, it's not like you've never had a worry. Okay, so the technical definition of a worry is a negative anticipation of the future. A negative anticipation of the future. And the reason why that's very helpful to think about is handling worry becomes an extremely important part of the pandemic. And important, the notion that you need to find safety at some point. This is why we're showing you a slide now of this wonderful animal called an antelope. And science says we can learn from antelopes how to cope with a pandemic. And here's how the story goes. Science says, I know many of you who have animals as pets would disagree with this very vigorously, but I'm just telling you what the behavioral experts who work in, in this field say, and we can discuss this in Q&A afterwards. They say that animals experience anxiety just like we do, um, but animals don't worry. That's the essential difference between them and us. So here's an antelope. The antelope uh, is grazing in a field in Africa, and the antelope, you'll see antelopes, if you see them on, on nature documentaries, um, are eating, and they bend down to eat from the grass. Then they look up to check there's no lion or cheetah around who are the main predators. So, But they bend down and they eat again. So they are vigilant for the possibility of a lion or a cheetah, but it doesn't look like they're worrying about it because they carry on eating. When you and I start worrying, we go off our food. Now, a, a lion or a cheetah starts running after the antelope and the antelope makes a bolt for it. Now, the antelope really should worry because statistically speaking, the cheetah can do 60 miles an hour and can outrun an antelope. 
But actually, most attempts by lions and, and cheetahs to, to kill an antelope, only about a third are successful chases or hunts, because the antelope has a secret weapon, which is cornering. The antelope is more maneuverable and it has managed to stay alive through extreme cornering. Having outrun the lion, the antelope pauses, checks there's no lion around, returns to eating. The lion, sorry, the, the, the antelope has found a place of safety. The new latest thinking in the psychology of, of neuroscience is that um, escape panic is not about running away from danger. It's running towards safety. And you need to know what safety looks like. The problem with worry is it transforms any place you are into a dangerous place. The antelope knows where safety is, runs towards safety, and creates safety. You need to do that in a pandemic, despite the fact the government keeps telling you whatever you do is dangerous, going out is dangerous, someone comes in from having been out, even though you've been in all day, that's dangerous, etc., etc., etc. You need to find a place of safety. How do you do that when you could be quite safe at home, but worrying about something bad happening to you? Worry has a tendency as a mental phenomenon to turn even places of safety into dangerous places. And if everywhere is dangerous, that's when mental breakdown beckons. So I'm gonna suggest a very powerful technique called worry timetable. Worry timetable says you're gonna pick a time in the day when you're allowed to worry, and you're going to worry during that time. Any other time, you're not allowed to worry. If you have a worry, a negative anticipation of the future, a thought that comes to you, you park it till your worry timetable. Let's say worry timetable between 5.30 and 6 p.m. every day, that's when you're gonna sit there worrying, and you're allowed to worry between 5.30 and 6, you're not allowed to worry at any other time. We've created through worry timetable, a cognitive psychological mechanism, a place of safety. Now, therapeutic advice, which is just don't worry, isn't so helpful because you can't just not worry. What you can do though, is postpone the worry to a particular time of the day. Now, a magical thing happens, by the way, and we can talk a little bit more in Q&A about how to handle worry in greater detail. It's a big subject, I can only touch on it very briefly, but it's very important you evolve a policy as a heart of, of the heart of coping in general with life, but in coping with the pandemic of where you create a place of safety, a mental place of safety or a physical place of safety and worry timetable does do that. You can postpone worry, you can't stop worrying. A magical thing happens if you postpone worry to a set time between 5.30 and 6, by about 5.35, 5.40, you've run out of worries. And actually very interestingly, you sometimes have to shorten your worry timetable. It's a very powerful technique. And we'll talk a little bit more about um, how to um, cope with worry. Um, let's go move to the next slide. Uh, the next slide um, is um, a, a dramatic slide of Grenfell Tower going up in flames, big tragedy that happened a few years ago in Britain. A lot of people died. Um, and we're running out of time a little bit um, uh, because I think I'm meant to finish at uh, 11.30. But basically to say that the reason I was showing this slide is that this is about how to cope with loss. And there was ambiguous loss because a lot of people died in this uh, terrible tragedy, but many um, of relatives outside the tower suffered what we call ambiguous loss. For many days, they weren't sure whether people had been in the tower or not been in the tower. And so it was very difficult loss to adjust to because it's in a way you can go about coping with loss if you know for certain what's happened to the person 
that you've lost. And one of the key problems with the pandemic was it presented people with a lot of losses. They may have lost their job, they may have lost coping skills. And in the final few minutes we got left, because we're running out of time, I want to talk about the four key tasks of coping with loss. Uh, everyone knows about the phases of coping uh, of loss, and that's a very unhelpful model, which is very widely abroad. The four task model of coping with loss is extremely powerful, and it's about the idea that things you have to do, and you have to do them in a certain order. And given most of psychiatry, practically all of psychiatry and psychology and most distress in life boils down to handling a loss, learning how to cope with loss is an extremely important coping skill. The four task model is absolutely essential but it's very difficult to find it anywhere on the internet. So what are the four tasks and what order do you have to do them in? The first task, task one, is accept the reality of the loss. I want you to notice the very precise use of words I'm using. I didn't say accept the loss, I said accept the reality of the loss. Accept it's over, the boyfriend's gone, the girlfriend's gone, it's over. It's time to accept that reality and move on. Task two, and most people, by the way, don't do task one, but they're still trying to do task two, three, and four, and that's why they're not being effective in coping with loss. And we're talking about coping with loss successfully. Task two is ventilate the emotions. Having accepted the boyfriend's left you, you're going to be very upset, angry, kick the cat. A lot of sort of surprising emotions can come out, including anger, but ventilate the emotions. You can only ventilate the emotions, again, notice the precise use of words there, um, if you have done task one successfully. Task three is learn new skills. If the person that was looking after you and you were in love with got tragically hit by a bus and they did the tax returns and the cooking, then you will have to do the tax returns and the cooking. You will learn new skills. All losses involve learning new skills. The hassle of learning those new skills um, can cause um, people a lot of stress. Roll up your sleeves, understand you're gonna learn new skills. You're gonna have to. Task four is called reinvest the emotions. The emotions are invested in the lost object, the lost boyfriend, have got to be invested in a new project. Sometimes when parents tragically lose a child, they invest their emotions in starting a charity in memory of the child. Going back to Lorna Breen, very interestingly, having struggled, obviously, coping with the loss of, of this wonderful daughter, the family set up a charity which was intended to help, uh, uh, cope, help doctors uh, and carers deal with mental health issues. So that's a good example of task four in action. The four tasks of coping with loss, task one, accept reality of the loss, task two, ventilate the emotions, task three, learn new skills, and task four, reinvest the emotions. So one final poll, very quickly, because we're running out of time. Um, we're gonna just show um, uh, Butterbot and Luca Stello. These are um, uh, a, a comedy duo. Um, is humor a good coping skill? We're gonna discuss that maybe in the Q&A, because we're running out of time, but I wanna do a final poll about um, uh, this uh, thing, um, because a lot of researchers have looked at, at comedians. If humor was a good coping skill, then surely comedians should be like mentally really resilient. Well, there's actually quite a high suicide rate amongst comedians. So researchers have examined comedy double acts. Uh, in a comedy double act, there's usually a funny man and a straight man, just like with Butter Buck and Luke Costello, Lauren Hardy, Eric Morecambe and Ernie Wise. Um, there's a straight man and a funny man. So here's the key question, who dies first? When you do longevity research and you follow them up, I'm not discussing dying in front of an audience in terms of no one gets your joke. I'm talking about dying longevity-wise. Uh, who dies first, the straight man or the funny man? That's the poll. So everyone says you need a sense of humor in order to survive. Um, does the straight man or the funny guy statistically have a much higher chance of dying earlier? Option one, it's random. When funny or straight, it makes no difference. Option two, it's the straight man. 
Option three, it's the funny guy. Option four, the question is set up wrong. Both can be right. Um, so um, think about that, because think about the fact, where does a sense of humor come from? Um, often the straight man and the funny man, interestingly, one of them's thin and one of them's a bit overweight. And often um, the overweight guy is the funny guy. Um, does he die first because he's just generally overweight? Or how come there is that tendency? Maybe the overweight guy was bullied at school because he was overweight and learned to develop a sense of humor as a way of coping with being overweight. And that's where the sense of humor uh, came from. Okay, um, uh, the answers to the poll are in. It's random and funny or straight makes no difference. 12% said that. It's the straight man, 7% have said, said that. It's the funny guy, 51% said that. The question is set up wrong, both can be right, 29%. Now, 51% of you are right. It is the funny guy who dies first. Um, and um, um, clearly you've been listening to my talk and you've developed fantastic psychology and psychiatry expertise. Uh, we're gonna stop there and take some questions and answers. The reason why psychologists believe the funny guy dies first is because he tends to be more impulsive. I'm sorry about that alarm. It's very loud. It's to make wake my teenage kids up when an Amazon delivery comes. Okay, right. So um, we're going to stop there and get, leave some time for Q&A. Michael, over to you. Raj, fantastic. And really nice to hear about the worry timetable and the, the four key tasks in coping. Uh, we've got a few things here, just a few comments uh, while you uh, compose. Uh, uh, Bob McDowell points out that uh, one, uh, a son of a friend he knows quite well actually stopped his course in psychology because he found it quite disturbing and we've got quite a few comments here uh, about uh, really the uh, the issues to do with existentialism uh, Lloyd Greensight points out it's very interesting existentialism and he points out that back in February Nassim Taleb coming more from an economics angle published a piece saying we should assume the worst and plan for that rather than wait to see what happens as the cost of reacting after the event is so much greater. So interesting angles here. Um, I might start with a question uh, from Matthew Leach. Surely an essential element of worry is the intense problem solving activity that usually goes with it. What would be the point of worrying at 5.30 if it was just anticipating a negative future? Uh, better surely to be problem solving at 5.30. Yes, excellent point. Uh, absolutely the right response to worry is to problem solve. So let's take an example. You're a student, you've got an exam in a year's time, you wake up in the morning worrying about the exam. Define the worry. What is the negative anticipation of the future? The negative anticipation of the future is that I might fail the exam. So let's take a problem solving approach. The first step in the coping algorithm is how likely is the worry to be true? How likely am I to fail the exam? I've just had another worry. An asteroid's about to fall on me. Um, the next step is how likely is that to be true? So you need to evaluate the evidence. Well, um, I evaluate the evidence about how likely is it I might fail the exam. I inspect my knowledge and discover I know nothing about the subject. Therefore, I'm probably going to fail the exam. Therefore, the next step in the coping algorithm is problem solving. What can I do to make it less likely that this negative anticipation of the future is going to come true? What can I do now? Well, I can revise for the exam. That's the correct problem solving approach. And you should do problem solving. But here's the thing about chronic worriers. If you revise all the hours that God sends in the day, eight hours, 16 hours, chronic worriers keep worrying after they've done the 16 hours. And that's when worrying becomes maladaptive. Worry is healthy to the extent that it points you in the direction of anticipating something bad coming down the railroad track and leads you to problem solve now, okay? Once you've done all the problem solving you can, you need to start worrying. 
The big mistake that lies behind the question, it's an excellent question, is that problem solvers keep problem solving, because they think that's the right thing to do, way beyond the point. Actually, they're not doing effective problem solving. They're just worrying. OK, so see the difference between problem solving and worry. The 5.30 to 6 o'clock worry timetable is precisely a time when you can start doing some problem solving as well. I'm not saying don't problem solve, but my point is restrict worry to a set time because if worry comes at any time, um, it, it, it can turn um, our everyday life into a nightmare. Now, obviously, if a problem arises between the outside the times of 5.30 to 6 and you have to problem solve, problem solve then. Don't park it till 5.30 to 6. I'm talking about general generic worry you have on a daily basis that keeps recurring. Park it in worry timetable. <coughs> I hope that answers the question. Yeah. yeah. Charles Vermont's put forward a definition of worry, which I, I think is quite rich here. Worry, a preoccupation with something a person cannot do anything about, includes past, uh, present, and future situations. Well, that speaks very excellent point, speaks to the point that the correct approach to worry is problem solving. Why do people keep worrying? Because they've discovered they can't solve the problem. And that's at the point at which you have to switch away from getting to worry and see when problem solving has become ineffective and just continuing to worry is no longer problem solving. And what you need to do is switch to the only other coping skill there is beyond problem solving, which is emotionally focused coping. That's a clunky term, but I want you to remember it because emotionally focused coping is the things that address your emotional state in the face of the unsolved problem and involve things like distraction, engagement, absorption. Anything that distracts, engages and absorbs you, like let's say watching the television, um, uh, is, is emotionally focused coping. If you're as a student, you keep watching TV instead of doing problem solving though, that's a mistake, okay? Sure. So understand there's only two coping skills, but understand which is the appropriate one to be doing depending on the situation you're in. There's only problem solving, there's coping, there's emotionally focused coping, that's it. That's the whole universe of coping boiled down to just two things you can do in life, no matter what stressful situation you face. Remember this, there is no third option. I don't care what Tony Blair says. There is no third way. It's either option one, problem solving, or option two, emotionally focused coping. Well, Robin Davis is now worried if he's worrying properly. <laughs> I'll leave that to one side. Uh, oh, that's a good point. There is a thing called meta-worry, uh, which is very interesting. It's worrying about worrying. And some people are so out of control with their worrying, they're scared to think about worry because they know an avalanche of worry is going to arrive and they're going to be in a completely out of control place, which is why worry timetable is such an excellent coping strategy. Well, uh, Michael Shapiro actually likes your worry timetable. He says, I'm not a great worrier, but some of my family and team are. The worry timetable is a great idea, but how does one discipline oneself not to worry the rest of the day? Well, you have to really be hard on yourself and realize um, the trouble with worry, again, is people sometimes think it's a noble thing. Um, all successful people are chronic worriers, right? So one of the reasons they do th that's the way is because they take responsibility. They take responsibility for their lives on the project. If the project's not going to work, it's my fault. I'm worrying to make sure the project works. That enduring sense of responsibility means that chronic worriers believe they're doing something noble in worrying. They actually think that to do emotionally focused coping and watch a film when there's some big problem that they're not solving that can't actually be solved is somehow irresponsible. It's actually irresponsible to continue worrying pointlessly. You're just getting yourself upset and that will lead to a deterioration in performance. So understand what it is to be an effective human being. An effective human being 
worries, understands what worry is, and negative anticipation of the future, then goes through the coping algorithm. When they get to the point they can see that worrying is achieving nothing, they stop worrying. It is more responsible to stop worrying than to keep worrying for no good reason. Uh, Lasse is, is, is also excited about this technique, but has a question regarding how effective or easy is it to implement. He has quite a few. But it's all the chronic worries. But it's all the chronic worries are really struggling with this one. It's I have friends I'm noticing on these ones. I have a friend who um, I have quite a few psychologists in my social circle and they do have That's these tools available, but are famously bad at implementing cognitive therapies on, on themselves. Is there hope for the rest of us to implement the technique on our own? Uh, he also goes on, uh, and I'll just tack it on here. Uh, Dr. Perceau's outlook mirrors this, the ancient Stoics in philosophy. Analyze the worst negatives. If it happens, you're ready. If it doesn't happen, the minor hiccups don't seem so bad. Yes, um, uh, Stoic philosophy is very, very important. And many people say modern cognitive behavioral therapy is just an, a, a reinvention or a rediscovery. Of Stoic philosophy. I believe actually a better book, and I say something very controversial now, although The Plague is obviously a Nobel Prize winning piece of literature, but one of the better things to read during the pandemic is Stoic philosophy. And I would in particularly recommend uh, Marcus Aurelius' uh, The Meditations, uh, famous uh, Roman emperor, but unusually for a Roman emperor, also philosopher. Um, he wrote the book often in his tent with the with the tent flapping in the wind um, uh, uh, with his army about to go in the next day to war where he might die and be decimated, but he wrote the meditations. And one of the key things he says, of course, in the meditations is anything that becomes an obstacle to the way uh, becomes the way, okay? And that's a really important point at the heart of dealing with the pandemic. When you are stopped from doing what you need to do, you need to reformulate and actually don't see the opposition or the obstacle as something getting in the way. You have to incorporate the obstacle into your life. It becomes a fact of life and you make it become the way. What it gets in, in the way becomes the way. Very, very important, very profound uh, piece of philosophy. Um, now, everyone keeps saying this is difficult to do. Yes, I get the worry, fat, worry time table is difficult to do. I need to explain a few things. This is why I started to go brutal on you guys, okay? There okay. is no alternative, <laughs> okay? So well, get it. <laughs> and you're going to have to practice it as well. Practice worry timetable. It won't be easy to begin with, but you'd be surprised how quickly uh, people can adapt to it. Um, and, and you can't just stop worrying, but you can postpone worry. Now, the other quick point I want to make is you can't just stop worrying or postpone it. You have to have other things you want to do with your life. How sad are you if all you want to do all your life is just worry about stuff? There are more productive things to do with your life. Go and learn the oboe, okay? Read the meditations. Have other things you want to do with your life and then spend your life worrying. It's not a good look. It's not attractive. Let, let me wrap up a few because we've got a lot of comments here for us. Um, <laughs> Uh, some of them are quite political. Uh, uh, Ian Harris is pointing out that his head is full of analogies with the four tasks model. Task one is very close to the thing economists and finance people call sunk costs. Could Raj please coach the president of the United States in task one by any chance? Um, JY is sort of curious, isn't the source of worry or feeling that you cannot do anything against the stupid measures imposed by governments? I knew, I knew we'd have uh, Brexit at some point. Uh, so uh, guaranteed there. Um, Philip Leone is curious. In your opinion, Raj, is Boris a funny guy? This could be a good coping mechanism for me. So uh, uh, quite a bit here uh, of interest. Uh, Bob McDowell points out something. I'd like to pick up two things if we could quickly. He says, 
interestingly, religious leaders in the community have had much more pastoral work during the pandemic amongst those of little religious persuasion, uh, but are suddenly confronted with their own mortality and find it uncomfortable. Um, is that something you'd like to comment on? Yes, I mean, again, what's very interesting, um, the, the reason for the rise of existentialist philosophy as a form of psychotherapy was the rejection of existentialists of the notion that religion was really that helpful. But the, the reality is religion has been the main coping skill long before psychiatry and psychology evolved. It's a very powerful coping skill. There's no doubt about that. Um, however, it's got its problems in that it tends to lead to excessive fatalism. Um, if you're on the deck of the Titanic and the boat has hit an iceberg and it starts to go down, sitting around on the deck praying to be rescued is less effective than diving into a lifeboat. So the deep problem at the heart of religion is when there's actions to be taken, problem solving to be performed. Sorry, I don't mean to be blasphemous. I respect religion massively, but it, it tends to be flawed in that area. When there is nothing you can do, you're in the lifeboat, you just the pray you're going to get rescued, then religion is very powerful at that moment in keeping people going. The trouble is with religion, you can't just buy into it in the lifeboat and not buy into it when the deck of the Titanic and you need to jump off the Titanic. You can't just kind of like, you know, dispense with it when you need to. That's the problem. Whereas coping skills are things you can dispense with or use depending on the situation uh, you find yourself in. So I am going to get very messianic about worry timetable. You have to do worry timetable. I'm sorry, I know I'm something like the leader of a cult, but I'm going to go messianic on the worry timetable point. Over well, to you, Mike. It's our new religion. <laughs> so uh, uh, Ian Sheridan's curious about the role of exercise. Doctors and psychiatrists often propose not to prescribe any drugs. Uh, is there increasing scientific awareness that exercise is a key component in many scenarios? Yes, I think that's a very important point. Um, however, you know me, I'm a maverick figure. I'm going to be difficult on this one. I think exercise is very important. I play a lot of tennis. I play beach tennis. I go running. However, the idea of exercise as medicine, sport as medicine, we're going to dispense, go, go jogging as a prescription is deeply flawed. The deeper question is, why are people not naturally enjoying exercise and doing it naturally? Why do you have to tell them to go and do it? Okay, that's the problem that's really perplexing. Um, you should exercise, but the deep question is, why do you not enjoy exercising anyway? Why, why does someone have to tell you to go and do it? Because if you're only doing it because you're doing it because someone told you to do it and it'll help you drop dead from a heart attack, you won't keep doing it. People who try to exercise to lose weight won't keep exercising. You've got to exercise for the intrinsic joy of exercising, and then the other benefits will flow from that. The deeper question is, why do we have to exhort this population to get off the couch? and go running or take up tennis. What's going on that they don't naturally want to do or be physically active? So uh, last one, I'm gonna wrap up a few because we're running out of time sadly and lots of compliments I'll be passing on to Dr. Pariso people. Um, uh, Raj, you mentioned there's a difference between worrying and anxiety. What are the signs we should look out for to distinguish them better? Um, uh, that's from Lloyd again. Uh, Hugh Purser says that some dic dictionary definitions of stress refer to great worry. So can stress be time managed? Well, stress as a word means several different things. Stress could mean the bad thing that's happened to you. You can't time manage the iceberg. The iceberg happened when you, you're on the Titanic and it hit the iceberg. But you can time manage your response. So another word for stress is your response. You feel stressed. That is your response to uh, the life event. And what we've been talking about is how to be more resilient because there are coping skills you can mount, um, which means that you can survive things like icebergs. 
Um, the point about anxiety is very well made. Anxiety is an emotion. If, when you go to see any therapist, if they don't start by saying to you, what are, is an emotion? What is anxiety? Leave quietly. That is not a good therapist. You've got to start by defining things before you can move forward. So very quickly, because we're out of time, anxiety is an emotion. What is an emotion? An emotion has three main components. There's the feeling experiential side of an emotion. Everyone mentions that. There's a physiological, biological side. And the fact there's biology means there's genes to emotions. And if there's genes, there's an evolutionary purpose to emotions. Emotions evolve to help us perform behaviors, like as an antelope, run away from a lion if you feel panic. So think about those three components. Anxiety is a particular emotion which evolved to respond to threat or danger. All anxious people want to discuss is their anxiety. You need to transition the conversation into where is the danger? Where is the line? And what are we going to do about the line? Um, if you keep thinking there's a line all the time around you all the time, that's why you're anxious all the time, then the question is, how come you're still alive? Okay, um, check your pulse. If you're still alive, maybe the lions in your head are not out there in the prairie. Thank you, Mike. Oh, Raj. It's great. It's very clear we could go on for ages in the audience, but, uh, but many of us have to disappear, sadly. But it's been really super. If you could just hold for a second, I've got three rounds of thanks. Uh, firstly, to our sponsors. I hope you've enjoyed this. It's a, been a slightly different view of life, but I think one very important before the holidays. I'd like to thank the audience. Uh, you've been superb today. Lots of good questions and comments that we were able to feed in. Uh, just a reminder that we have a, a rich program coming up next week. Uh, just before the break, so do check out the website uh, and, ha and have a look at things there that you'd like to, to handle. I particularly point to next Thursday when Nicolas Ferron is dialing in from both Bruegel and the Peterson Institute, and we're going to have a replay uh, in this uh, pre-Brexit era, which many of you are worrying about governments out there. Uh, we'll have a replay of what might happen if we had another uh, banking crisis, a British one, what might the response be? So I think that will be an intriguing what-if scenario analysis, and hopefully we can confine it to 45 minutes of worry, so that we're very tight on the, on the timetable there. Uh, Raj, I've written down, actually, to go back to Marcus Aurelius, which I think is a truly fantastic read and a good project for people over the break to, to go back. I personally uh, like the way, the Dao Kadao Buja Dao, so the Taoism, but uh, tonight, uh, sorry, this afternoon, to close, uh, I'm going to suggest another approach, which is, of course, Buddhism. And I have here, therefore, uh, to say thank you to you on behalf of the audience. I have a Korean karmic clapper, which is uh, from a my favorite temple, which is in Bulgoksa in Korea. And I would like to say thank you on behalf of our audience. So thank you, Roger. Hopefully thank we'll you. have you back next year. Thank Take you. Take care. Thanks.